You're listening to the St. John's Diamond Creek podcast, recorded live each Sunday at St. John's Anglican Church, Diamond Creek. This episode presented by Senior Minister Tim Johnson. Uh, I've spoken to you before about the morning ritual, uh, sacred ritual, that takes place in the Johnson household, otherwise known as making coffee. Uh, So the first thing I do when I get out of bed is turn the coffee machine on. Uh, Or even better now, uh, my son Samuel, who's four years old, uh, if he's climbed into our bed early in the morning, I send him to turn the coffee machine on. Uh, And it's still enough of a novelty for him that it's kind of exciting that he gets to turn the coffee machine on and I get an extra couple of minutes in my warm bed before I have to get up. But after about 15 minutes, the coffee machine's warmed up and I assume the position in front of the golden cuff, I mean the the coffee machine. Uh, There's beans in the grinder, that's all set, ready to go. The milk jug is there, it's prepared. There's cups sitting on the top, they're nicely warm so that when the coffee hits the cup, it won't go cold, it'll hit a warm cup, it's perfect. And I grip the group handle, I turn it clockwise, and then I see it. Someone's left coffee grounds in the coffee machine. And I know exactly who has done it. Anna! I call to my wife. I mean, how hard is it? You'll, you'll take my side here, I hope. How hard is it to clean up after yourself when you use the coffee machine? All you need to do is, when you're finished, is to release the handle, bang, one bang, into the sort of place that collects the coffee grounds, and you're done. And you can leave the coffee machine in a fit state for the next person to use it. Uh, And I'm going to tell her just how frustrating this is when this is left in this sort of state for me. Uh, Because clearly, when she made a coffee yesterday afternoon, she's left it like this. And then I think to myself, Anna was at work yesterday afternoon, and none of my kids drink coffee yet, Uh, so the last person to use the coffee machine was me. Don't worry, honey, nothing to worry about. Uh, We've all done it, haven't we? We've all blamed someone else for something that we've done, Uh, and today we're thinking in uh, this Peacemaker series uh, about actually having a look at ourselves and taking responsibility ourselves before we start picking faults and blaming other people for things. So through this series, we're thinking about conflict, uh, the reality of conflict in our life. We're thinking about what the Bible teaches us about dealing with conflict. Uh, And we've seen that when we're in the midst of a conflict, uh, very much we sort of set it up as a competition. It's us versus them. Uh, we're in competition with another person, we've got to win, they've got to lose. But we've been trying to reframe conflict through this series to understand that we need to think of it in a broader context. So God is present when we're in the midst of conflict. God is there, God sees it, He's involved. Uh, And God has repaired the relationship between us and Him through Jesus So as Christians, we're actually called to be people who repair relationships and work really hard at relationships because God has already done that for us in Jesus. So we need to see conflict not so much as a competition, but as an opportunity. Uh, Last week, Sam spoke to us about the opportunity that exists for us to to honour God, to glorify God. 
to think about God being present with us in the conflict and how we can please God by the way that we act, the way that we respond. And today I want to think about another opportunity that exists for us, an opportunity for us personally to grow in the midst of conflict, because conflict's a chance for us to become more like Jesus. It's a growth opportunity if we take it seriously. So when we're in the midst of conflict, we often focus on the other person and we focus on all the faults that they've got, all the problems that exist with them, how their character is flawed and faulty. But Jesus wants us to flip that around entirely and to look at ourselves first before we go picking faults with other people. He tells us, get the plank out of your own eye or get the log out of your own eye in other versions. So we're going to look at his teaching in Matthew chapter 7. Uh, So if you've got your Bibles there, page 788. Uh, The first verse, Jesus says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Lots of people get confused about what Jesus is saying here. Is Jesus saying that you can never make judgments um, about other people or about things? Is he saying that you shouldn't use critical thinking, that you shouldn't decide between right and wrong? No, he can't mean that because in the verses that follow, he goes on to talk about things that require us to make critical judgments and to make decisions between right and wrong. So an example, if you go down in chapter 7 to verse 15, Jesus says, watch out for false prophets, right? Watch out for people who come along, who pretend to be teaching you truths about God, but they're actually deceiving you and misleading you. How can you spot a false prophet? Well, you've got to make a judgment, don't you? You've got to look at what they're saying, look at their behavior, uh, and make a judgment so that you can be wary of them. So Jesus is not saying, switch off your brains, don't make decisions. He's not saying, don't worry about morality, switch off your, your moral compass, don't worry about right and wrong. He's not saying that. What is he saying? Jesus is really warning us about being judgmental, right? Being overly critical of other people, uh, always finding faults with people, and really holding other people to standards of behavior that we don't apply to ourselves. Later on, Jesus will say, you hypocrite, right? You hypocrite because you're asking other people to do something or you're judging them on certain standards, but you're not actually judging yourself first and holding the same standards for yourself. Now, we do this, don't we, as as humans? In fact, uh, psychologists... Uh, have identified that this is something that, that humans do all the time. They've even got a name for it. They call it um, the fundamental attribution error. Okay, that sounds swanky. Uh, what does that mean? Well, let me give you an example. Let's say I go to a party uh, and I meet someone. I've never met them before. Let's call them Greg. Uh, and Greg's really short. He's not in height. Like He's, he's short with me. He's rude. He's, he's not particularly talkative. Um, I'm likely to conclude, having met Greg, Greg's a jerk, right? Uh, Greg's not a nice person. Uh, His character is rude and selfish. Now, here's the thing. Greg might have just smashed his car. Uh, Greg's dog might have died, and Greg might have lost his job the day before. So he's feeling pretty lousy, not particularly talkative at this party. But our natural tendency is to interpret other people's behavior in terms of their core character and who they are as people and to ignore 
other factors that might be going on for people which might explain the way that they're behaving and make a lot of sense. But when it comes to ourselves, we, f we flip it round. This is the other part of this error that we make. We flip it round. So if I'm, if I'm rude to someone, so I say something rude to Robin, right? Um, I excuse my behavior by saying, oh, you know, um, I was really tired, so I spoke rudely. Oh, um, she always, Robin always pushes my buttons, which is why I was so rude when I responded. Um, or, you know, I've been, I've been pretty stressed. It's been a pretty stressful week, uh, and that's why I spoke rudely to Robin. I don't conclude, do you know what? I am a real jerk, and I have a really flawed character because I spoke rudely to Robin. I justify my behavior because of what's going on. So these sorts of double standards that Jesus is talking about, um, we observe all the time, and we actually do. We hold different standards often for other people than for ourselves. And Jesus warns us, verse 2, he says, in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Uh, Jesus is probably saying, like, when we do this sort of thing, when we judge people in this way, they will judge us back. They'll sort of say, well, you held a standard for me. I'm going to hold that same standard for you. But I think Jesus is saying more than that. He's also lifting our eyes again to God, who is present and sees what we do. And he's saying, you know, God will ultimately judge us and our behavior. And if we hold these really high standards for other people and expect them to behave in a certain way, it's quite reasonable, isn't it, for God to judge us by the same standards and say, well, you know, you required other people to do this. Shouldn't I require you to do it as well? I should say, um, ultimately, we don't stand under the judgment of God if we are followers of Jesus because Jesus' death completely deals with our sins. But if we are judging other people in a certain way, it is reasonable for God to ask the question of us, shouldn't those same standards apply to you? And to illustrate the point, Jesus uses one of the most powerful and vivid images in the Bible. He wants us to picture someone with a plank in their eye. Now, I've, uh, here's one I have brought, brought from home, okay? Here's the image that Jesus has. You've got this, this person, and they've got this whopping great chunk of wood protruding from their eye socket, okay, like so. And, uh, oh, gee, Kirk's got a piece of sawdust in his eye. Kirk, just let me, let, just let me fix, right, not good. Dangerous. Um, occupational health and safety, put that away. We kind of laugh, right, because it's so stupid, right? You've got this huge plank of wood and you're trying to find a tiny little speck in someone else's eye um, and the image is bizarre and silly and Jesus says, be careful because that could be you. You could be the guy with the plank in your eye. And before you go trying to pick faults with other people, finding all of their problems and sorting out their problems, have a look at yourself and deal with the plank that's in your own eye. Don't be a hypocrite about it. Fix your own problem first. Look at your own life first. Prioritize sorting yourself out and your godliness first before you're fixing, out, fixing up other people. Now, notice that Jesus doesn't say you should never challenge other people's behavior. And Jesus doesn't say it's wrong to confront other people 
when they mistreat you or in a conflict that you point out the way that people have behaved badly. He doesn't say that at all. He isn't saying you always mind your own business and you never talk to other people about what's going on. Jesus is talking about priorities, isn't he? Look at verse 5. It starts with the word first. Jesus says, first, take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the plank from your brother's eye. Deal with yourself first, remove the plank, and then when you don't have a piece of wood in your eye, you'll be able to see much more clearly to help the other person with the minor problem that they've got. You'll be equipped to actually address other people. Now, in a situation of conflict, there's usually some fault on both sides. In most situations, Both parties in the conflict have contributed something to what's going on. Uh, And you could think about sort of percentages as to who's at fault. So maybe maybe it's 50% their fault, 50% my fault in a conflict. Uh, Maybe it's actually 75% their fault and 25% my fault. Uh, Maybe it's 98% their fault and 2% our fault. Fault. We rarely flip those numbers around, by the way. It's usually more their fault than our fault. Okay? But regardless of who's more at fault than the other, there's one thing that's guaranteed. Whether it's 50%, 25%, or 2% my fault, I am 100% responsible for whatever part I've played in the conflict. You can argue about the numbers, who's more at fault than the other, and sometimes we use that as an excuse, well, it's more their fault than my fault, so I don't have to do anything. No, we are 100% responsible for whatever our part is, and Jesus is saying, deal with your part first. Start with yourself, even if it's the minor part in it, take the log out of your own eye before you go searching around for a piece of sawdust in someone else's eye. And here's the great thing about Jesus' advice for us. It's a great opportunity for us to grow. Conflicts are not necessarily pleasant. We don't necessarily want to be in situations of conflict, but they can be a great opportunity for us to grow to be more like Jesus. Jesus is trying to help us here. If I do have a plank of wood sticking out of my eye and I'm trying to get on with everyday life, it's hard, isn't it? Wouldn't you want to remove it? Wouldn't you want to get rid of it? Wouldn't it be better if you did that? So Jesus is saying, this is good for you. (laughs) It might not feel pleasant to try and get the plank out, but it's good for you, it'll be better for you if you deal with it. Now often, you know, um, the planks that we have are not, not so obvious. Well, they're not obvious to us. They might be more obvious to other people who can more readily identify our faults than we identify our own. But the thing about a conflict is it often uncovers things that are going on deep in our hearts that we didn't realize that were there, and maybe we don't even like when they come to the cold light of day, and God might want to use the conflict that you're in at the moment in order to deal with some of these things and to make you more the person that he wants you to be. Because often situations of conflict allow us to uncover idols which we're clinging to in our lives. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Um, The most common kind of neighbourhood dispute that takes place, anyone want to guess what it is? Fences. 
right? So often, neighborhood relationships are broken because a fence needs to be put in between two properties, and people argue about the location of the fence, whether it's in the right spot or not, what type of fence they need to get, and who's going to pay what portion of the fence, right? It leads to huge problems, right? Sometimes people literally do end up with a plank in their eye, right, when they're fighting over putting in a paling fence. And if you're locked in a dispute like this, and you're stubbornly standing your ground, you'll often say things like, well, look, it's not so much about the money, it's the principle of the thing. Or, look, it's not so much that I mind that the fence is two centimetres within our yard, um, closer into our yard than it, than it needs to be, but it's about justice, and it's about fairness. But if we were to pause for a minute, take time to actually reflect on our own heart and think a bit more deeply about what's going on for ourselves, if we were to stop looking at our neighbour and all of their faults and problems, take Jesus' advice really seriously, we might well discover that there is, in fact, a plank there that needs removing. Maybe I do love money more than I like to admit. Maybe this encroachment on my yard, however minor it is, represents an attack on my security. Right? Someone is taking a piece of my great Australian dream, my house and land, which represents my dreams, my goals, everything that I aspire to. And the fact that they've moved the fence means that they're taking a little bit of my dream. It's more than the yard. There's something deeper going on in my own heart. And often, if you think about it, what are the things in conflicts that really rile you, really push your buttons? Right? If you explore that a bit more, that could be an opportunity to recognise why that's the case. And I want to suggest that it could be, there's a good chance that what is being threatened and getting you upset or angry in those conflict situations is what we might call an idol that lives in our hearts. Right? An idol is something other than God that we're depending on to be happy, to be fulfilled, to be secure. Uh, you might remember back in the first week of the series, we had a look at James chapter 4, and we saw that conflicts start with the desires that we have. We desire good things. We desire good things for ourselves, for our families, uh, for our career. We desire good things for our church. But people frustrate our desires, right? Someone else wants what we want, and so we can't get it. Or someone wants something different to what we want, and so we can't agree together and seek after the thing that we desire. We're prevented from having it. So we start with these desires, but when they're frustrated and we can't get them, we move to demanding that we have to have these things, right? We, we must have them because they're essential. They're essential to our fulfillment or our identity or to our well-being. And it's no longer about, I wish I could have that. It's, I, I must have that. The initial desire might be okay. It might be a good thing that we were desiring. But now we must have it. We're treating it a lot more like an, an idol, something that's essential to us uh, as a person. Now, can you see how conflicts might be um, really good for uncovering what these idols are in our lives. Because in a conflict, it's often what we hold most dear that is threatened 
which gets us most upset. Or when we overreact to something that someone else says, um, it could be because they've, they've encroached on the shrine in our heart where the, where the idol lives. Why did I bite back so harshly at work the other day when someone pointed out you know, that, that minor flaw in my presentation? Is it because that person's just a really critical person? Or is it that I'm actually investing my identity far too much in my work? Um, I'm trying to be the perfect employee. They've shown a chink, chink in my armor. Um, and, and my hopes of, of climbing uh, the ladder in the workplace is, is threatened. And that's what's upset me so much. So in order to protect these idols, whatever they are, uh, we move from demanding to judging other people. Right? The problem can't be with me, it must be with them. I only yelled at my boyfriend because he was late. I only refused to do that job that I was supposed to do at work because the boss ignored me the other day. I, I only left the dishes on the bench because I'm always the one who does it. Here again the words of Jesus. Do not judge or you too will be judged. So we judge other people and try and find the fault with them rather than with ourselves. And when we've judged other people, we punish them. We act inappropriately towards other people. We say things to them that we shouldn't say or we say things about them that we shouldn't say. Uh, maybe we ignore them and give them the silent treatment. Uh, maybe we even damage something of theirs. We damage their property or we lash out physically at other people. You know the sorts of things uh, that happen. See, the thing is, idols demand sacrifices. Idols demand sacrifices. And if someone else fails to satisfy our desires, fail to satisfy what the idols within us want, if someone sort of impedes us getting what we think we deserve, well, our idols demand that the other person suffer. Whether it's deliberate or whether it's unconscious, we will find ways to hurt and to punish other people so that they will give in to our desires. And so part of this process of getting the plank out of our eye is actually examining what's in our hearts and what's really driving our behavior. Rooting out the idols that exist there Idols which lead to conflicts and which fuel conflicts, pour petrol on the fire. And the way to do this is to actually work backwards through that list. That's the way to identify what the root uh, of the idols in our hearts are, right? We start at the bottom and we say, well, in this conflict that I'm thinking about, and you might think of one particularly that you're in at the moment, how am I punishing the other person that I'm in conflict with? How am I trying to hurt them? Then how am I judging them? What standards am I holding them to that I'm not necessarily applying to myself? What is it in this conflict that I'm demanding that I must have? And then the last step, the hardest step, what is the underlying desire for me? What is it that really lies at the heart here? that is a desire that I'm, I'm clinging onto and I don't want to let go. Now, if you can get there, and I'm not pretending this is easy, this takes time, this takes self-reflection, this takes prayer, but if you can identify that desire, what it is that, you're, that lies there in your heart, 
then you can do business with God about that thing. You can lay that desire before God and say, when it comes down to it, God, there is this thing there that I'm depending on for my identity apart from you. God, I've put that thing ahead of you and I need to deal with it. I want you to satisfy me. I want you to satisfy my desires because you can do it in a way that these idols will never be able to do. And ask God in that moment to forgive you and to replace the idol with a growing love for him and an all-consuming desire to worship him. Uh, I've got a mate called Sam who was a missionary in Japan and he shared the good news of Jesus uh, with a friend of his. He spoke about Jesus' death to deal with our sins, Jesus' resurrection to give us the hope of life forever with God. Uh, and this friend made a decision that he was going to follow Jesus. So he went straight home where he lived uh, with his mum and he pointed to the idols on the shelf in their house, literal idols, right, statues, household gods that they kept at home. And he said to his mum, what have those idols ever done for us and our family? And his mum thought and went, nothing. So they, they grabbed the idols and they took them outside to the street and they, they smashed them on the ground and then they got a hammer and they sort of broke those big pieces into pulverised little pieces and they got a broom and they swept them up and shoveled them up into a garbage bag. All the while, people were watching them with horrified looks on their faces because these are really precious idols. You know, this is really important stuff uh, that people had there and they're destroying them. They're, they're shattering them to pieces and chucking them in the bin. But for this guy, when he made a decision that he wanted to be a follower of Jesus, he didn't want anything to do with these idols, these other things that were competing with his love for Jesus. And he realized that these, these idols did nothing for him. Now, it might be harder for us to identify the idols in our own lives. They're not physical, they're not tangible, they're not sitting on a shelf. But when we do identify them, we need to smash them, we need to get rid of them because they're doing nothing for us and they're actually diverting our attention from God who deserves our attention and who can satisfy us in a way that these idols can't. When we discover what they are and conflict is a great opportunity to identify what they are, let's get rid of them, let's deal with them so that we can grow closer to God. So part of removing the log, the plank from our eye is actually working out what's going on deep within us and asking God to deal with the idols that live there. But another part of it is also dealing with the way that we've hurt other people. It's not just between us and God and asking God to deal with our idols and saying sorry to God, but actually what we might realise when we look at the logs in our own eyes is that we've done badly by other people. Maybe we've mistreated people um, and hurt other people. We've punished them because they've frustrated our desires. Um, and in those situations, we need to acknowledge our part in the conflict, and we actually need to apologise to other people for what we've done. And Jesus' command here is that we need to take the initiative in identifying our own fault and being the first to apologise when we recognise what we've done. Now, I reckon we're pretty lousy at apologies. I don't think we're very good at it. We need to work at it. So I want to get really practical here uh, as we think through how to make a good apology. 
Right? This is this thing that I found really helpful. It's seven A's of a good apology, because uh, they all start with A. Um, and it sounds a bit mechanical, it sounds a bit formulaic, right? But this is the thing, when you're not very good at something and you need to practice at something, you need steps that you've got to go through in order to get good at it, okay? It's like when you're learning a new sport or a musical instrument, you've got to do set things to get good at it, okay? So it might seem mechanical, but I think it's really helpful in order to make us uh, get better at it. So here's the seven A's. The first one is that you need to address everyone involved. A good apology means that you say sorry to everyone who's been impacted by your particular bad behaviour. So here's an example. Uh, I might think in my head, I'm not saying it out loud, I'm just thinking in my head, gee, Kirk's an idiot, okay? Um, now, if I identify that thought, I might need to take that to God. I might say, God, I'm having these terrible thoughts, um, I've really thought bad things about Kirk in my head, uh, and I'm sorry that I've done that, and I need you to deal with those bad thoughts. Right? That's where it needs to be dealt with at that point. But if I say to Kirk, Kirk, you're an idiot, right? Uh, I might need to address Kirk when I realise that that was the wrong thing to say in Kirk, and say, Kirk, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have called you an idiot. Please forgive me. But if I get up in front of the church and say, everybody, I want you to know today that Kirk is an idiot, okay? Then it's not enough for me after the service to sort of pull Kirk inside and said, Kirk, I'm really sorry, I, I shouldn't have said that to you. Now, I need to get up in front of the people that I've said that to and say, guys, I need you to forgive me. I shouldn't have called Kirk an idiot. It was the wrong thing to do. I've asked him to forgive me, but I need to actually publicly state that I said the wrong thing. Right? You've got to address things and deal with things in the context in which they happen uh, and to the extent to which you've done the wrong thing. So you need to address everybody. Secondly, you need to avoid if, but, and maybe. Surefire way to wreck a good apology is to add one of those words in because it's a way of justifying our own bad behavior. I'm sorry I yelled at you, but you really made me mad, right? And you're actually saying, well, it was really your fault because you made me mad by adding the word but in there. Or, or this classic one, I'm sorry if I did something to offend you, right? <laughs> Heard that one? Which is really saying, it was kind of your fault because you're a bit overly sensitive, but I feel like I have to apologize. I don't actually think I've done the wrong thing, but maybe if you're offended, well, fine, I'll say sorry, right? Take a red pen to the apology. If the word if, but, or maybe appears in it, cross out everything that comes after that word. And if, you, if you're giving an apology to someone in your head and you're, you start saying if, but, or maybe, bite your tongue, put a full stop, finish the apology. You've probably said everything that you need to say, and you're going to wreck it if you add one of those words. So avoid if, buts, and maybe. Thirdly, admit specifically. The more detailed and specific an apology is, the more powerful it is. So instead of saying, oh, look, I haven't been a very good employee lately, much better to say, I've had a really negative attitude, I know, over these last few months. I've been critical of my colleagues and it's led to fights uh, at work. Uh, and I, look, I especially want to apologise to you for criticising your work in front of Sarah the other day. See the difference between those two things? Admit specifically, if you recognise you've done something wrong, name it, be specific about it. Fourth, acknowledge the hurt. Think about the impact that your actions have had uh, and what painful and negative emotions it's caused within the other person 
and include that in the apology. You must have been really embarrassed the other day when I told that joke in front of all those other people. I'm sorry that I did that to you. I can see why you were frustrated when I didn't do my part of the group work at school. Look, I'm sorry that I failed to, to keep my commitment to you and to the rest of the group. Right? Acknowledge the hurt that you've caused. Uh, fifthly, accept the consequences. Let the other person know that you're willing to accept the consequences that come as a result of your behaviour. If you've damaged someone else's stuff, then you need to be prepared to pay to have it repaired. If you've lied, you need to acknowledge that you've lost the other person's trust. If you've spread gossip or false information, then you need to speak to every person that's been passed on to to set the record straight. You see this in the Bible. Uh, Zacchaeus, who was stealing money off people, meets Jesus. What does he do? After he's come into a relationship with Jesus, he pays people back four times what he's stolen from them, and he gives half of his possessions to the poor. Right? He accepts the consequences for what he's done, and he actually changes his behavior, which is the sixth thing, alter your behavior. Uh, when the Bible talks about repentance, it doesn't just mean that you feel a bit bad or you feel a bit sorry for what you've done, but it doesn't have any impact on what you do, no. Repentance is about doing a U-turn. You are behaving in a certain way, you need to turn around and you need to change the way that you're actually living because you've made, um, because of what God's done for you. So a good apology can involve telling the other person what you're going to do differently in the future. Look, from now on, when someone tells me something about you, I'm going to check with you whether it's actually correct before I just get angry and start abusing you on the basis of that information, okay? Alter your behavior. Change as part of the apology and let them know how you're going to change. And lastly, number seven, ask for forgiveness. End your confession with the question, will you please forgive me? It's a way of signaling to the other person that you're taking responsibility uh, for what you've done, for your part in the conflict, and you're asking them to make a decision to forgive you. Now, we're going to talk in the coming weeks about forgiveness and forgiving other people. That's not easy. It's not straightforward. It's quite complicated, and we need to think more about it. And we need to be careful when we ask another person to forgive us that we're not pressuring them to do that. Okay? If they feel forced, then you'll create a burden of resentment and bitterness. Now, they might need time to process what you've just said to them, the apology that you've made, and to think it over before they're in a position where they want to forgive you. To repeat what I said earlier, whatever our part in the conflict, we're 100% responsible for our part. And making an apology and asking for forgiveness is taking ownership for our part. But we can't make the other person do their part. Right? That's up to them. And they might choose to withhold forgiveness. They might choose not to forgive you. They might choose to cling on to their hurt, cling on to their anger, and not forgive. And if that's the case, we need to remember what we heard last week, that God, God is sovereign. God's in charge. And God is good. And if we've taken ownership for our part, then God's honoured. God is glorified by the fact that we've done that. So in the midst of conflict, before we start fixing other people, Jesus' words to us here are, 
Start with yourself. Step away and examine yourself first. Get the log out of your own eye. And then you'll be able to see clearly to get the speck out of the other person's eye. I'm going to invite the band up uh, and I'm going to pray for us as they come. Jesus, your words are very challenging to us. Uh, It's easy to understand what you're saying to us. It's very hard to put it into practice. So we ask for your help. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work in each one of us. Help us to be honest and to identify these areas of fault within ourselves. Help us to search deeply within our hearts. And we ask that your Spirit would shine a light on these idols, these things that we are desiring and clinging to ahead of you. And we ask that you would give us courage. Give us courage to deal with these idols and give us courage to be willing to apologise to other people where we've hurt them. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. If you've got any questions about this podcast, connect with us on our website, stjohnsdc.org.au or at facebook.com slash stjohnsdc. Don't forget, you can join us live in Diamond Creek every Sunday at 9.30am and 6pm.